Hello, Wild Wanderers, and welcome to another episode of the Dispatches from the Forest podcast. I have recently learned that I have, in fact, a number one fan. So today, I'm going to start with a shout out to my number one fan, Brock. Brock lives in Northern Virginia, and I have it on good authority, that authority being his mom, that Dispatches from the Forest is Brock's most requested podcast, and that he never misses an episode. So, Big thanks to Brock for being a loyal listener, and also to he and his mom for supporting the podcast. So Brock, this episode is dedicated to you. Now I've talked about wolves, and I've talked about coyotes, so there's only one wild canid left to tell you about, at least in North America, and that is the fox. Now there are many species of fox around the world, but they all have a reputation for being clever and cunning. In many of Aesop's fables, in Asian mythology, and in Native American mythology, foxes are portrayed as tricksters or con artists. They use their intelligence to get food or to trick others. So we have phrases like sly as a fox or saying that someone has outfoxed an opponent. These are all references to the intelligence of the fox. And as you'll learn, they come by this reputation honestly. Foxes can be found on every continent except Antarctica. There are six species of fox that call North America home. We have the Arctic fox in the far north, the diminutive kit foxes and swift foxes of the west and southwest, the island fox on the California's Channel Islands, and the more widely distributed gray fox and red fox. While they all share some similar characteristics, they all, as you're about to learn, are unique and interesting in their own right. So let's take a closer look at the smallest of North America's wild canids, the foxes. I'm your host, Tim the Nature Nerd O'Hara, and this is the Dispatches from the Forest podcast. While different species of fox can vary widely in size and color, they share some common characteristics. They have a slightly flattened skull, upright triangular ears, a pointy snout, and a bushy tail known as a brush. Foxes also have partially retractable claws. Now, foxes are omnivores. They're predators that hunt and eat insects and small animals. Because they're predators, they have carnassial teeth, scissors-like pairs of upper and lower molars adapted to be self-sharpening that are used to shear flesh. But, like I said, they're omnivores, and studies have shown that when it's in season and available, fruit can actually constitute almost 100% of their diet. With the exception of the Arctic fox, which is generally solitary, foxes may live in small family groups. However, unlike wolves and coyotes which hunt in packs or pairs, Foxes tend to be solitary hunters, which makes sense given that their primary prey is small animals like mice, voles, and birds, things that are not exactly big enough to share. Male foxes are called tods or dogs, and females are called vixens. Young are known as kits. So now let's take a look at some specific species of fox, and we'll start with the arctic fox. Arctic foxes, as their name suggests, are found in the arctic tundra of the northern hemisphere. They primarily inhabit tundra and pack ice, but they can also be found in the boreal forests of northern Canada. They're the only land mammal that is native to Iceland, arriving there during the last ice age by walking over the frozen sea. Arctic foxes are relatively small, averaging just 6 to 8 pounds and just under 3 feet long, including their tail. 
While we tend to think of arctic foxes as being white, they actually have two genetically distinct coat colors or morphs, white and blue. White morph arctic foxes in the summer are brown and gray and only white in the winter. They live inland where their white winter coat provides camouflage against the snow. Blue morph arctic foxes are dark blue, brown, and gray year-round and live on the coast where their color helps them blend in better with the rocks and cliffs of their environment. Interestingly, the gene for the blue morph is dominant over the gene for the white morph, but 99% of arctic foxes are white morphs. Arctic foxes will eat whatever small animal they can find. Lemmings, where they're present, are their most common prey. In some locations in northern Canada, migrating birds that breed in the area are an important food source during the season when they're present. Arctic foxes are also a significant bird egg predator, consuming eggs of all but the largest tundra nesting bird species. Now, Arctic foxes have excellent hearing. They can hear a lemming under five inches of snow and an incredible sense of smell. They can pick up the scent of a carcass left by polar bears and possibly the polar bears themselves from nearly 25 miles away if the wind is right. And they can smell and find a frozen lemming under two and a half feet of snow or detect a seal den under almost five feet of snow. But what I find most interesting is the adaptations Arctic foxes have evolved to help them survive in one of the coldest places on the planet. An environment where the difference between the fox's internal core body temperature and the external temperature of the environment can differ by almost 180 degrees. First of all, like other animals that have to survive a long cold winter, they build up fat reserves in the fall, sometimes adding up to 50% of their body weight. Now this helps them add a layer of insulation. Their compact shape also helps them retain body heat by giving them a smaller surface area from which to lose heat. Only about 22% of an arctic fox's body loses heat readily. That's compared to 33% in a red fox. In addition to staying in the den and getting out of the wind, the arctic fox will curl up tightly, tucking its legs and head under its body and furry tail. This gives the fox the smallest surface area and protects the areas that have the least insulation. But when the mercury plummets, their first line of defense is their dense, multi-layered fur. The fur of the arctic fox is the most insulating of any mammal, and compared to the summer coat, the white winter coat is 140% thicker. Arctic foxes are also the only canid whose feet are covered in fur. In addition to built-in fur-lined booties, they can keep their feet just above the tissue freezing point when standing on ice and snow, without losing mobility or feeling pain. And they maintain the temperature of their paws independently from their core body temperature. If their core temperature drops, the pad of the foot will remain constantly just above the tissue freezing point, which is around 30 degrees Fahrenheit. Just thinking about that makes me want to put on a nice cozy pair of wool socks. Now let's move from the far north to the west coast. Off the coast of central California, there are eight islands, the Channel Islands. Five of the islands are part of Channel Islands National Park. Two are controlled by the Navy, and the remaining island is part of the Nature Conservancy. On six of those eight islands, you can find one of the smallest canid species in the world, the island fox. The fox population of each of the six individual islands is unique as well. Each is its own subspecies endemic to that particular island and found no place else on Earth. Why six of the eight? 
Well, of the two islands that are not home to island foxes, one is too small and the other lacks a reliable source of fresh water. Island foxes are descended from the gray fox, which we'll talk about a bit later, but they're much smaller than their ancestors by about a third, weighing in at only around four to five pounds and standing about 12 inches tall. Despite their small size, they're still the largest native land mammal found on the Channel Islands and the only carnivore that's unique to California. A lack of natural predators on the island means that the island foxes, unlike their gray fox ancestors, are more likely to be active during the day. However, they're small enough that a major source of mortality since the 1990s is predation by golden eagles, which were attracted to the islands by the presence of feral pigs, a non-native species. Golden eagles were able to establish breeding populations on the Channel Islands when bald eagle numbers declined due to DDT. Island foxes are also vulnerable to periodic outbreaks of diseases like distemper and rabies. On the island of Santa Catalina, a distemper outbreak in 1998 killed almost 90% of the island's foxes over a two-year period, sending the population plummeting from 1,300 to just over 100 individuals. It took 15 years of carefully trapping and vaccinating the island's foxes for their population to surpass the pre-outbreak level. The risk of disease transmission is a major reason pets are not permitted in Channel Islands National Park. Now, the presence of foxes on these islands begs the question, how did they get there? The closest island is about 22 miles off the coast. The farthest is 75 miles away, much too far for a fox to swim. And geologists don't believe that the islands were ever connected to the mainland. Well, there's two theories about this. The first is that during the last ice age, somewhere between 10 and 20,000 years ago, the sea level would have been almost 400 feet lower than it is today. This would have meant that the four northernmost islands would have been one big island, and the channel between that big island and the mainland would have only been about four to five miles across. Now that's still too far to swim, but it's possible that gray foxes rafted across the channel on debris propelled by currents or storms. Then, as the glaciers melted and sea level rose, the channel widened, the one big island became four smaller islands, isolating the foxes and leaving them to evolve into the foxes we see today. But that still leaves their presence on the other two islands unexplained. Now, the second hypothesis is based on more recent archaeological finds. The oldest fox fossil found on the islands have been dated at around 6,000 years old, several thousand years after native people inhabited the islands. Native people who populated these islands considered the foxes to be sacred. These recent fossil findings suggest that it's possible that gray foxes were brought to the islands intentionally by indigenous people and then evolved into the smaller island foxes that are there now. Moving east, we find another small fox species, the kit fox. Kit foxes inhabit arid and semi-arid regions, primarily in the southwestern United States and south into Mexico, although they range as far north as the arid interior of Oregon and east to Colorado. They're similar in size to the island fox, weighing between three and a half and six pounds. Kit foxes measure between 18 and 21 inches long, with their tail adding another 10 to 12 inches. Unlike the Arctic fox that evolved to conserve heat, Kit foxes evolved to dissipate heat and conserve water. Kit foxes have exceptionally large ears, between three and four inches tall. 
These large ears help them dissipate heat and give them excellent hearing. They're primarily nocturnal, resting in their dens during the day to escape the heat. Again, in contrast to the arctic fox that has adaptations to help its feet handle the cold, kit foxes have stiff tufts of hair on the soles of their legs, which help protect their feet from hot surfaces, as well as improving traction on loose, sandy surfaces. Kit foxes may dig their own dens, or they might take over the abandoned burrows of prairie dogs, badgers, or groundhogs, but they often have 11 or more dens spread out across their home territory, so they're never far from safety. Kit foxes are monogamous, and both parents take part in raising kits. Moving farther east, we find swift foxes, which are very similar to kit foxes. Swift foxes are found primarily, though, in short grass prairie habitats. They have smaller ears, but are otherwise almost the exact same size as kit foxes. Now, predator control programs aimed at coyotes and wolves nearly caused the extinction of the swift fox in the 1930s. And, in fact, it was extirpated from Canada by 1938. Between 1983 and 1996, 540 swift foxes were released in parts of Alberta, Canada. And by the year 2000, the swift fox population had tripled in number, making it one of the most successful endangered species reintroduction programs in the world. Now, exact population numbers are hard to determine, but swift foxes currently occupy about 40% of their historic range. So, how did the swift fox get its name, you ask? Swift foxes can run 30 to 40 miles an hour to escape predators. Coyotes are the primary predator of swift foxes, even though they don't necessarily eat them. Swift foxes are also preyed on by badgers, eagles, and bobcats. Swift foxes are more heavily dependent on their dens to shelter from predators than most canids, and they may occupy up to 13 dens in a single year, moving either because of a lack of prey or due to a buildup of parasites in the den. Recent research has shown that female foxes are the ones that maintain a territory at all times, making their social organization unusual among canids. Now, so far the foxes I've talked about all have relatively restricted ranges, but the next fox is much more widespread. In fact, it's the only canid whose natural range spans both North and South America. It's the ancestor of the island fox, the gray fox. The gray fox occurs through most rocky, woody, or brushy areas from southern Canada all the way south to the northernmost reaches of South America. At one point, the gray fox was the most common fox in the eastern United States, but human activity and habitat loss allowed the red fox to become the predominant fox in this area, although gray foxes can still be found there. Prior to colonization, the gray fox was mainly found in deciduous forest, the red fox in boreal or pine forest. Even now, gray foxes in urban areas prefer to be near hardwood trees. Gray foxes are larger than the foxes we've talked about so far. They're about two and a half to three and a half feet long, including their tail, and typically weigh somewhere between eight and 15 pounds. Compared to the more familiar red fox that I'll tell you about next, the gray fox is similar in weight, but appears smaller because they have shorter fur and shorter legs. In addition to fur color, they can also be distinguished from their red cousin by a lack of black stockings, which are conspicuous on the red fox, and by the black stripe that runs down the gray fox's tail, culminating in a black tip. But the coolest thing I learned about the gray fox while researching them for this episode is that they're specifically adapted to climb trees. 
The gray fox has strong hooked claws that allow it to scramble up a tree to escape from predators like coyotes or to reach potential food sources. Not only that, but they can jump between branches and they'll descend either by jumping from branch to branch or by descending backwards like a cat. Gray foxes may even den in hollow trees as high up as 30 feet above the ground, in addition to stumps or the appropriated burrows of other animals. How cool is that? But it's the red fox that you're probably most familiar with, and with good reason. The red fox is wide-ranging. Its range covers roughly 27 million square miles, give or take. They can be found as far north as the Arctic Circle, in Africa north of the Sahara Desert, throughout much of Asia, and throughout most of North America, with the exception of the southwestern United States and Mexico. But they're the only fox that's native to Western Europe. In Australia, there are over 7 million red foxes, but there they're considered to be an invasive species. They were introduced in the 1830s by British settlers who wanted to foster the English tradition of fox hunting, and they've been implicated in the extinction or decline of several native Aussie species. Like their fox cousins, they have a long body and a long bushy tail. The tail of the red fox is about 70% of its head and body length and touches the ground when it's standing. They're typically reddish with a white chin, white throat, and chest. They have black feet or stockings and a white tip on their tail. Red foxes, however, have also been known to have a silver color morph, where the fur is pure black with a mixture of 25% or more of silver hairs. Red foxes are incredibly agile. They can jump well over six feet high, and they're excellent swimmers. They also have amazingly acute senses. Their hearing is so sensitive they can hear a crow flying from a third of a mile away or a mouse squeaking from over 300 feet, and they can locate the sound to within one degree. They have binocular vision that reacts primarily to movement, but most amazingly, they may be able to see or at least sense the Earth's magnetic field. When hunting in snow or even thick grass, red foxes pinpoint their prey with their hearing, then leap in a large arc known as a mouse pounce, which lets them reach their prey underneath. What's truly fascinating, though, is that their overall success rate is just 18%, unless, that is, they're facing northeast. When facing northeast, their success rate jumps up to 73%. So what's the difference? Well, by facing northeast, they line up with the magnetic field of the Earth. This alignment, combined with their ability to pinpoint their prey by sound, lets them calculate the precise location and pounce with amazing accuracy, even through several feet of snow. Red foxes make a wide range of vocalization, which can span five octaves. The most commonly used is a barking wow-wow-wow call. This particular fox sang for my game camera here at Dispatch's HQ late one night. This type of call is believed to be a communication between foxes that are approaching each other. I can tell you from experience that they can be quite loud. I once chased a fox for a city block because it was yowling outside the window of my sleeping infant. 
Foxes will also make other noises like whines or a throaty rattling sound called geckering. That's spelled G-E-K-K-E-R-I-N-G. Bonus points if you can work that into a conversation this week. While not hated with the same passion as wolves and coyotes, red foxes, more than any other fox species, have been hunted for sport since at least the 4th century. Alexander the Great is known to have hunted foxes, and a seal dated from 350 BC depicts a Persian horseman in the process of spearing a fox. The Romans were hunting foxes by AD 80, and during the Dark Ages in Europe, foxes were considered secondary quarries, gradually growing in importance until by the 1500s, fox hunting had become a traditional sport of the nobility. Fox hunting in Britain peaked in the 1700s, and even though they were already native to North America, red foxes were imported to Virginia and Maryland in 1730 for sporting use by prosperous tobacco farmers. At the time, gray foxes would have been more prevalent in these states, but red foxes were considered to be more fun to hunt since they tended to run farther when pursued, versus gray foxes which tended to stay in a smaller area. In addition to being hunted for sport, foxes have been hunted and trapped for their fur and persecuted as pests throughout history. I even recently saw a post on my Nextdoor app regarding foxes where one commenter said, quote, if they come into my yard, it's going to end poorly for them, unquote. Although he never really said why he harbored such animosity toward the foxes. Many people just assume that they'll kill pets, cats in particular, but urban red foxes have frequently been seen feeding right alongside them. When they do kill cats, it's probably because they see them as competitors rather than food, and really, in a fight, the cat generally has the upper hand in spite of being smaller. Red foxes have been known to prey on lambs, especially if they're sick or weakened, domestic rabbits, guinea pigs, or chickens, hence the phrase fox in the hen house. But keeping cats inside and other animals in a protected run is generally enough to avoid problems. Hawks and raccoons are why my chicken run is completely enclosed. Foxes are why it's bordered by cement paving stones. In places where red foxes are considered a problem, just like it is with coyotes, killing them is not really an effective solution. Killing red foxes has very little effect on the population in an urban area. Those that are killed are quickly replaced, either by new kits during the breeding season or by other red foxes moving into the now-open territory. It's more effective to deter them from specific areas they inhabit. Securing trash cans and not leaving out pet food helps prevent problems. Foxes that become desensitized to people or become reliant on human feeding are more at risk of becoming problematic or even biting someone. Blocking access to den locations will also discourage an urban red fox's return. And that, my foxy friends, brings us to the end of this episode. You can follow Dispatches from the Forest on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider joining our growing number of patrons. For as little as $5 a month, you can support the show and you'll get some pretty cool logo merchandise with three months of paid patronage. Head on over to patreon.com forward slash dispatches from the forest to check it out. If you want to contact me directly, you can email me at dispatchesfromtheforest at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Tim the Nature Nerd O'Hara, reminding you to go outside and get dirty.
The Dispatches from the Forest podcast is a production of Dispatches from the Forest and may not be used or rebroadcast whole or in part without express written permission.